And right after I watched the video, I went to my closet, pulled out, you know, a gray pair of gym shorts, have white sneakers, pulled those out, and then a white t-shirt. That was the same exact outfit that Ahmad Arbery had um, as he was running. Like I could put myself in his shoes. And then I thought about what it would be like for me to just run outside, I'm minding my own business, but then two people just, you know, following me and pulling out their gun. You know, I didn't want to believe that we lived in a world where something like that could happen. This is a growing process and you're not going to have the right words or the perfect words every single time. But staying silent, somebody else is going to write the narrative for you. Welcome to the Heart Candy Podcast. I'm your host, McKenna, fellow coffee lover, sour gummy worm enthusiast, and most importantly, your friend. My heart behind this podcast is to help take your focus off of the eye candy that our culture has taught us to be obsessed with and magnify the heart candy that exists around each and every one of us every single day. We'll be hanging out with women just like you and just like me who are making a difference in our communities right now. Girl, are you ready to feel equipped, encouraged, and empowered? I know I am. So what do you say? Come join in on the conversation and let's get to it. Welcome to the Heart Candy Podcast. Today I have on the show someone who is very near and dear to my heart. He's a whole lot of love, a whole lot of drive, and he is one of my best friends. We have done a lot of life together, we've laughed together, we've cried together, and we have gotten on each other's very last nerve. But there's not a lot of people that I trust like I trust him. His name is Benson Chapman. As we all know, we are living in very trying times right now. Jesus is coming. That is all that I have to say. But seriously, this world seems to be just like falling apart at the seams. And the latest has been the injustices that have been happening within the black community. All that has been happening is it's just really heartbreaking. And the best thing that I know how to do in my power to bridge the gap between me and my black brothers and sisters in Christ is to simply just talk about it. It's a hard conversation, guys. It's not glamorous. It's not comfortable. It might not even feel empowering, but it's a conversation that I feel needs to be had because the truth is no matter where you stand on the issue, our neighbors are hurting. Our brothers and sisters, they're hurting, and it's our responsibility to ask the hard questions, to listen, and to try to understand. So that's what we are going to do today. Benson, thank you so much for being here with us. You're welcome. I'm so excited. Um, for those of you who don't know, Benson and I went to college together, mm-hmm. and we basically were kind of like, we basically lived together even though we're in separate different apartments. We spent so much time together. We have so many good memories. Ben, do you have a favorite memory? <laughs> A favorite memory? Um, there's so many. There really is so Man. many. I like, I honestly, I don't even really remember the day that I met you. Yeah, I, I don't just, remember. Like, all of a sudden, one day you were there. Yeah. You know? I think, like, the, in my mind, the memory when I, like, oh, McKenna and I, like, were close, when I, like, realized that we were close was our promo trip. McKenna and I used to go on promo trips 
all over the country. Oh, the one to but Illinois? The one to Illinois. And I was just bugging you as you were, like, passed out in the oh back row. That That's, like, so the true. memory I'm like, yep, McKenna and I are going to be forever lifelong friends. <laughs> I still have a video of you bugging me that made me post. <laughs> <laughs> just so people can get a little glimpse of your personality. So funny. So it funny. Is the best. Well, before we get into this conversation, give us like the spark notes version of Benson. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Where are you from? Where are you right now? And the question that I always seem to ask on this podcast, maybe because it kind of matches the theme is Mm -hmm. what is your favorite candy? Oh, that's a loaded question. Mm -hmm. Ooh, uh, I'm Benson. Um, I am from... I, I was born in Sudan, Africa, um, and I'm a refugee, migrated my way to Egypt, lived there for a couple of years, and then moved to New York, upstate New York, Syracuse, um, and that's where I grew up um, from the age of eight until I moved out for college. Um, so yeah, that's, I guess, from New York. Um Grew up there. I was adopted there uh, into an incredible family. Love my parents um, and my siblings and the whole family there. And then came to Missouri 2016 for college. Um, McKenna mentioned we went to school together at James River College. Um, some of the best years of my life. So much growth happened in those three years that I was in Springfield, Missouri. Um and I'm forever grateful for it. And the friendships that I made there, um, I, I'm just going to carry with them to the, for the rest of my life. Um, where am I now? I am in Kansas City. Um, moved out here a year ago this June. I guess, yeah, it is June. A year ago, um, I moved here. And moved here to be a part of Hillsong, Kansas City. Um, I love it. Um, and I work at a job called KC Social Innovation, and I'm a program assistant, and we just um, work with giving the youth workforce opportunity and um, get, getting them experience for uh, employment and workforce and stuff like that. So that's what I'm doing currently. That's awesome. And what's your favorite candy? Favorite candy? Actually, in front of me at this very moment, I have a Snickers bar and a Twix bar. Why? Every, like, I feel like almost every person that I've asked on this podcast, their favorite candy is Snickers. And I just don't Because you can't understand. go wrong. You got the no, caramel, you, you have well, the peanuts, and you have the... What? It's so good. No, it's crunchy, but you. also like smooth. You can't go wrong. I'm not a fan. Maybe because I'm more of like a sweet candy person, not like a chocolatey candy person. Mm. You know, maybe that's it. But you're in Kansas City, and I'm low key like salty about it. Still, I can remember you and Kennedy <laughs> sitting me down in the joust and being like, "Listen, we're moving, but like for real this time." <laughs> Because you guys planned on moving like five other times before that. And so I got to, I just like got to the point where I like just didn't believe it. And then you guys finally did. And all of my friends now I feel like live in Kansas City. And it's just a sad thing. 
but I think that's, that's a okay. sign that you need to join us in Kansas City. <laughs> Uh, I don't know about that, but it does give me a sign that I have a few vacations that I need to plan. Hey, Come you're on. always welcome. There we go. I <laughs> love it. Okay, so let's get into the stuff. So today we are going to be talking about racism, like I talked a little bit in my intro. Um, so I want to ask you, Vincent, being, mm-hmm. let's go back to like the beginning, Okay. Being adopted yeah. when you were young, a kid, by an American white family, did you, like, think as a child anything of the fact that your skin was different? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, even, like, backtracking even further, um, I remember the first time I saw somebody that wasn't Black, and it was when I moved to Egypt, Cairo, Egypt, Um and it was, I had just left Sudan. And again, I said I was a refugee. Um, we uh, escaped Sudan, made it to Egypt and stayed at a refugee camp there. And I remember like, that was the first time that I saw somebody that didn't look like me. Um, that they're, uh, In Egypt, it's Arab people uh, mostly. And that was the first time that I saw somebody that wasn't black. Um, so, like, I guess from that, that was when I realized that, like, oh, there's different shades of skin, you know? Mm-hmm. And I remember, like, in the apartment complex that we lived in in Cairo, the two kids that I hung out with the most, they're, like, my best friends. They were um, white. And I remember hanging out with them all the time, just like best friends, you know. Mm -hmm. So how old were you when you moved from Cairo to New York? I was eight years old. Eight years old. Mm -hmm. Wow. And what was that transition like for you? Um, It was... It was crazy. I moved to the States with my stepmom. And we met my dad. And at that point, I hadn't seen my dad in about five years or so. So um, it was just, you know, in my mind and from my vantage point, it was just the biggest family reunion that Mm -hmm. I could have possibly imagined. You know, Um, Mm -hmm. I think my dad was somebody that I held on to when I was in Sudan and Cairo, Egypt, of just like, that life was going to get better. You know, once I finally got back to my dad, life was going to get better, you know, and Mm -hmm. everything that I had dealt with in Sudan and in Egypt with the war and just like uh, everything that that brings, um, hanging on to that hope that like when I meet my dad, when I see him again, uh, things are going to get better. So I remember running, we had just gotten off the airplane, landed in Syracuse, um, our caseworker, who was a lady who worked through Catholic charities, had driven me and my stepmom to my father's house. And it was right after a blizzard. I've never seen snow in my life. <laughs> I just left Egypt, where it was like 95 degrees, to Syracuse, New York. And there was four feet of snow on the ground. Like, oh I, to this day, I'm still traumatized by the sight of snow. Really? Um, yeah, I hate snow. Like, I can't. I don't I think I knew that cold. you hated snow. 
oh no, I cannot do the cold. Cannot. And I'm still like in a place that snows. So I'm like, man, God, what do you, like, when am I going to go to Southern California or Florida? That's but so funny. it's in the works. Um, but yeah, I remember getting like stepping out of the car and saw my dad and he saw me and we just ran for each other on the sidewalk and just like embraced each other. And it was the first time in five years. So it was just like a long hug. And like, in my mind, I'm like, man, this is going to be like, everything's going to be good. Um, but uh, as my life seems to go at that point anyways, uh, that didn't last very long. Um, that happy moment, you know, that family moment didn't last long. And my dad just got abusive and um, I was kicked out of the house like probably four or five times um, in that first year of living in the States while still transitioning into, you know, learning English. I didn't know any English. So I'm trying to learn English. I'm trying to make friends and stuff like that in a new land and a new place. Um, but that transition was super difficult. I missed a ton of school. It was hard for me to like connect with people, which is like weird for me to say now because like, you know, I'm pretty social. Oh yeah. Um, <laughs> but at that point, like it was just super hard to connect with people in America, especially like I was again, born in Africa. So I looked, looked different than the black people that lived in America and I talked differently. Um, mm -hmm. So there was like that barrier as well. It was just like, oh, you don't really fit in, but you don't really fit in with like the white people either. So I'm kind of just like in this, you know, bubble by myself. Um, so that was, it was challenging, you know, to have to deal with that coming wow. to America. And that was like yeah. the first, that was the first year of That's so interesting. in America. I've never thought like the... I've never thought of it in how you just described it on how like you didn't really feel like you fit into either groups, mm -hmm. which I can't even imagine what that would feel like, you know, especially knowing you now, you are just like this, like uber confident, like literally a ball of joy to every room <laughs> that you walk in. It's contagious, truly, that I just like, just like I can't even picture I can't even picture that, but like who you are now, it's like so amazing to see how God has just really, you know, had his hand on every part of your life. It's just, it's really cool as a friend mm -hmm. looking on, you know? Yeah. Thank you. Um, so at what age would you say that the word racism began to really take shape for you? And can you tell us of a time where you have personally experienced racism in your own life? Um, age, it was probably, at, I mean, eight years old, that first year of being I'd probably heard and seen the effects of it at around eight years old, I would say. Um, but when did it become like something that I personally experienced? Um, I was probably, I had just moved in to my family's, the family that adopted me. Um, I just moved in to their house. Um, I was 10 years old and I was in school maybe 11, 
No, I was 10 because it was a little bit before I got adopted um, at 11. And I'm at school. We're at recess. Remember the days of recess? Um, oh, my gosh. I hate And we're recess. playing. <laughs> it was my favorite time. I'm like, loved it. <laughs> Uh, we're playing football, like everybody, we've got a bunch of kids on the football field and we're picking teams and like, there's two guys picking teams. One of the guys, his name was, uh, Lucas and Lucas like leaned over to his buddy and was like, Hey, don't pick, um, don't pick Vincent, the monkey over there. And that's when it like became real to me that I, I personally experienced it. And that was, I was 10 years old. And I remember like, I didn't even do anything. I heard it and I was like, what? Like, it's, okay, that's dumb. Like, but how my friends reacted and I was the only black kid in the entire school, uh, Fabius Elementary School in uh, Fabius, New York, like 30 minutes south of Syracuse, out in the country. I'm the only black kid. And this kid said that. And called me a monkey. Um, and all my friends, like, jumped to my aid, like, immediately. And we're just like, whoa, that is not okay. And then, like, teachers got involved. And I remember going to the recess ended. And the counselor, school counselor, asked to talk to me. And we talked. And I was like, I'm good. Like, I'm nothing happened. Like, I didn't fight. I'm good. My friends, you know, were there. Um, but I remember it was like a huge deal to the teachers and the counselor and to my friends. Mm. Wow. You know, like hearing you talk about that situation and like everything that has been going on makes me realize that, you know, and it saddens me to say this, that I don't know if I've even, I mean, obviously I've never experienced anything that you have, but I don't even know if I've even really witnessed it in my own circle. And as a white New England girl from the suburbs, I will be the first to admit that I am ignorant. I really am. And I used to think that because I lived within a five minute, you know, radius from Springfield, Massachusetts, which is a kind of urban area um, Mm -hmm. that I had and that I had a lot of really close black friends, you know, you, Nene, Stevie, um, and even so many in high school. I mean, Mm -hmm. you and I, we all basically lived together for two years. I thought that I had more of an understanding than I actually do. Mm -hmm. And for my ignorance, I want to apologize because the truth is I will never understand. And that's part of why I wanted to have this conversation with you is just to partner together as family. And though we don't understand, can you just like walk us through a little bit, you know, your side? Like, what does it feel like? Can you talk to us a little bit biblically what this looks like? I know that we've had some conversations before and I really loved kind of what you had to say about what the Bible has to say about this. Um, Can you just walk us through this a little bit? Yeah, I think how it feels. I mean, I think the recent events that have happened have kind of just like made, like, they're so real because it's video evidence, you know? Um, And it's just, it's video evidence, but like a man was just running, you know, exercising in his neighborhood. 
And I think for me, that was just like, so, so I like to stay active. Um, and sometimes I go on a run, you know, and I watched that video of Ahmad Arbery and literally forced myself to watch it till to its entirety. And right after I watched the video, I went to my closet and just put on, pulled out, you know, a gray pair of gym shorts. I have white sneakers, pulled those out. And then a white t-shirt. That was the same exact outfit that Ahmad Arbery had um, mm. as he was running. And I kind of just, like, I could put myself in his shoes. And then I thought about what it would be like for me to just run outside you know, minding my own business, but then two people just, you know, following me and pulling out their gun. It was just like a weird, like, I didn't, you know, I didn't want to believe that we lived in a world where something like that could happen, you know? And it's happened so many times, but that, like, that was just one video evidence that we had, you know, 10 months later, or 10, 10 weeks after the fact, after it had already happened, the video was posted so it just makes me wonder like how many other situations have we not heard about you know how like how and why was it why like how come justice took so long how come it took us like rallying together before something was done you know right. and i'm just thinking like man like this like when it's painful like the the depth that racism is in this country you know Mm -hmm. um it's painful and it hurts and then two like from I love God love the church it's what I went to school for to pursue that you know pursue ministry and I think like for me when everything was happening and I'm at a different place now but when Ahmad happened like I was just really frustrated at the church's response on how they were responding I just felt like it was, you know, 24, 24 hour Instagram story repost. Hey, we're praying for you, yada, yada, yada. And then the next day we moved on to our latte art, you know, mm. or just like whatever was next. When there was like whole community that was hurting and mourning. And then like a week later, Brianna Taylor happened, you know, and it was just mm. like, whoa, I haven't even like had the time to process the last tragedy tragedy you know and then this happens again a week later and then a week after that it was um George Floyd and it was just like trauma after trauma after trauma and I think after George Floyd the church really stepped in, stepped up and um and really used their voice to speak out and not just speak out but put action to their words you know um and actually take a step towards towards bringing healing. And I think that that's what like was key and why um, everybody's reaction is what it is, you know? And it's right. been, we're at like 12 days after the George Floyd video and people are still going strong, you know? It, people mm-hmm. are still protesting. And it's been like, for the most part, at least in my area, in my context, of Kansas City, it's been pretty peaceful. Um, to see people coming together and rallying together and just in hopes of bringing peace, you know? Yeah. 
Wow. So, yep. I don't even have, like, words, really, because it's just, it's all so, so just sad. It really Mm -hmm. is heartbreaking, and I don't believe any human should have to go through, you know, the type of injustice that, you know, Breonna and George Floyd and everyone who's gone before them, what they've experienced. And Mm -hmm. it's been interesting on my side to just watch and not like, you know, almost kind of just really kind of be paralyzed, I feel like is a word and how I feel on this end, because it's like, what do you do? You know? Yeah. And, um, yeah, it's just, I, I don't, I don't even know. <laughs> Could you? Well, I think, yeah, oh, go ahead. yeah, no, you, you finish your, your thought. I think you said, you know, like, man, what do you do? Mm-hmm. Um, how do you process what every, like everything that's going on and how do you just, I think that's a question I've gotten a lot from a lot of, um, a lot of white people that, are in my world, their question is just like, man, like, I don't even know what to say. Like, Mm -hmm. it's just so heartbreaking and so painful. Um, And like, there's a layer of like, I don't understand. So I really don't know. Like, I don't want to say something that's going to be offensive. Um, But also like, this hurts, you know, there's like a level of like, uh, there's, this isn't right but I don't know what to say that's going to like make it right. And I feel like whatever I'm going to say is not going to make it right. You know what I mean? Right. And I think, I think um, my encouragement would just honestly be like, the first thing I would do is just educate yourself, you know, Um, in American history of just the history of racism, the history of racism in like your own personal context, wherever that may be. I'm in Kansas City now. Um, so I've been doing a lot of research on just like what Kansas City's history of racism is. Um, and it's pretty deep. And it's even like, there's a road in Kansas City called Truce. And it goes down like the middle of the city pretty much. And to the east of Truce is like, super impoverished, um, poor, a large majority of the black community lives in uh, the east of Truce, but then the west is, west of Truce is like, that's where the plaza is. That's where uh, mostly white people go and hang out. Um, that's where all the money is and stuff like that. So even seeing that like visual divide in Kansas City, you know, has been, and then learning why that divide is there has been super helpful for me and helping me and communicating to people who don't look like me, how like how race has impacted their current context, you know? Mm. Um, but yeah. yeah. That's interesting. That brings me to another question I wanted to ask you because I know that I've asked you previously, you know, what do I do? <laughs> and I'm not going to lie, like on a personal level, I really have been struggling with what, my role as a white person is in all of this. Um, Obviously, I think that injustice, you know, and what's happening and the way my black friends are hurting is so wrong. And it's so, so sad. Mm -hmm. Um, 
But then there's also another side, like from where I stand, where I also have people who are close to me who are in the police force right now. And, um, you know, though absolutely the police force is showing themselves to be of ungodly character and straight out just mean, that side of my friends are also hurt and scared because they're being labeled as something and someone that is not really true to who they are in this time. And I feel helpless half of the time. And like I said earlier, paralyzed because especially as a pastor's kid, my life reaches such a vast audience with so many sides and opinions I find myself just wanting to curl up in a ball and just wait for it all to go away. But I know that that's not what the Bible teaches us to do. And mm-hmm. I was reading this morning, Micah 6, 8, where it says, um, He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? And, you know, it brings me the question of like, what is the most effective way for people like me to right now truly be the hands and feet of Jesus and to be all that Micah 6, 8 tells us to be, you know, to do justice and love kindness and walk humbly. Um, In your opinion, being on, you know, the receiving end of this, in your opinion, how do you feel that we can effectively do this? Um, I think it's interesting because you bring up the point of, um, of having friends who are in the police force and, you know, you know them, you know their heart and that they're not, um, they're not racist, um, or anything like that. And I think, like, I used to actually want to be a police officer and I, I spent like two years in high school doing a program called Police Explorers. And basically it's like ROTC for the police academy. It just like trains you from a high school age, um, everything police and law enforcement um, before you go into college and into the a police academy. So I... Like, that was something I was pursuing for a long time because, like, my heart is just to help people and serve people. Um, And then, obviously, God called me to ministry. But, again, like, I have a ton of friends who are in the police force, um, who are police in Kansas City and also back home in New York, you know, that are in the police force that uh, definitely played a huge role in my life. And I think this past Sunday in church, we did an interview with Captain Ron. He was the uh, captain who was in charge of um, of when Ferguson happened. He was the guy in charge of bringing peace back to the area when the Ferguson riots happened in like 2016, I think. And something that he said in the, his interview was, "We need to be. Uh, you need to be a leader that leads in healing." That's like, and that, that that phrase like struck such a chord with me. It was just like, man, like that's so true. We need to be leaders who lead in healing. And so for him, he's a black man who's a police officer who was in Ferguson when the Mike Brown um, riots were happening mm-hmm. over his death, and he was, you know, a lot of people would have been like, man, like, how can you, like, they're against us. You're a police officer. You're a black man. 
you should be on our side. Why are you wearing the blue uniform? Like, you're against us. But the way he led through that whole process, and it was like, he wrote a book called 13 Days in Ferguson. Um, but the way he led was so humble and so so disarming in the sense that, like, he he stepped up and joined the protesters and walking with them and not using his, you know, authority of being a police officer or anything like that with um, his gun or shield or whatever. Like, he completely just disarmed himself and was just wanting to be there to be a leader who was leading in the healing process of all the hurt that was going on. And it led me to a passage in 1 Samuel um, 23, um, 1 Samuel 22, David, at this point, David's running from Saul. He's being threatened. Um, His life is being threatened. And uh, David's running from Saul. Pick up in uh, verse twenty, uh, verse one of chapter twenty-two. David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress, and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him, and he became commander over them. And there were with him about 400 men. Um, And then fast forward to chapter 24. Saul hears that uh, David is in the cave and he he goes and Saul hears that he's in the wilderness around where David's hiding out in the cave. And Saul, he's going to the bathroom, goes in this cave that David is in, but he doesn't know it. And... uh, the 400 distressed, uh, brokenhearted people in that cave with David are like, hey, this is your opportunity to take Saul's life and, um, you know, get your rightful place and, like, get revenge for all the hurt that's been caused. And it, like, that struck a chord with me because I think for so many people, they see the protests and riots and everything like that. And when for Captain Ron, who's a black man, you know, it could have, it'd be so easy to like, be like, oh, the riding is okay. You know, the the burning and everything like that is okay. But I think this passage of scripture just shows you like, in order to be a leader who leads and heal, like in, in order to like move away and bring peace and healing into the situation, you need to be a leader that brings healing to the situation rather than brings revenge or more hurt to the situation. And uh, the men that were with David were like, Hey, you can take his life. But David was like, no, I can't commit this kind of injustice to someone that, you know, God's placed um, an authority already. Like my time hasn't come yet. And that just struck such a chord with me with like, man, like Benson, you need to be a leader who leads in, um, leads in the healing process of everything that's going on. Like you might be frustrated, and there is there are times too where, like, a couple weeks ago, I was really frustrated. Frustration was just towards like the um, pastors in the church and like their response. So I'm like wanting to lash out, but then like that reminded me of just like no, 
No, you need to be a leader who's able to, like David did, who's able to gather all those who are hurting and broken and um, just broken at the soul level and take them in and show them that, you know, healing can come. And the cool thing about that story, um, all those who are broken with David in the cave ended up being like some of his uh, most loyal followers when he became king. You know, there were some of his like um, his trusted warriors in his army because they had just like followed and he had given them a hand up um, when they were down in the dumps, you know? Yeah. I love that. I really, really love that. So how do you think we can be leaders of healing? Like, what do you think um, that looks like in our communities, in our church, in our families? What does that look like to you? Um, I think it starts with, I think it's already happened, but realizing that there is an issue, you know, of race and not being afraid to have those hard conversations regarding the issue, you know? Yeah. I think it's important to, for, like, when we were talking on the phone, something that you told me was like, man, like, I don't, like, I've been silent, but I don't know what to say, mm-hmm. you know? And I think say something and have the grace on yourself to, like, change what you say. Mm-hmm. Because you're. this is a growing process, and you're not going to have the right words or the perfect words every single time. But staying silent, somebody else is going to write the narrative for you of what you stand for or what you believe, you know? Right. And I think making a stand of, like, of it can be as simple as like I am against racism, like I'm anti-racism, so that people can see that this is not something that like you even that you stand for. Um, and using your voice in that way is super helpful because people will just realize like where you stand when it comes mm-hmm. to the issue of race. Um, and then two, like I tell people all the time, um, I've been using the right hand right-handed world analogy a lot lately but um are you are you right-handed McKenna yes I am right okay so for me I'm left-handed but everything in this world is created for right-handed people left-handed people are about 10 percent of the world's population so for example in school when you're sitting at your desk and writing with a pencil, kids used to ask me all the time, like my classmates used to ask me all the time, like, Vincent, why do you have ink or pencil all over your left hand? Like your hand's all dirty. And I would tell them it's because I'm, a le- I'm left-handed. And the desk and the way that we write as a society is created for right-handed people. You know what I mean? Because, like, when you write, you never have any ink on your hand because you're writing away from what you've already written. Mm -hmm. And I think it's the same way with the term. Like, a lot of people get super tense when they hear this term, but white privilege. Mm -hmm. And I think white privilege is the same, like, the same way. It's a right-handed world 
that left-handed people can't live in, which is black people. You know, not that we can't live in it, but it's it's significantly more difficult for us right. Right. to to do things because the like the, this country specifically is built for you know right-handed people mm-hmm. white, white um white privilege so i think understanding and i think i mentioned this to you but understanding that you have privilege and then using your privilege to bring those who don't have any privilege up that's really good and you know even just having that conversation has challenged me you know in it's honestly, it's not something I even really thought about at all. And so in some ways, I'm thankful that I have had this experience to really kind of give me a heart check, you know, mm-hmm. and, um, you know, that I'm able to have these conversations with you. And I hope that in this, people are learning to do the same. Because when it all comes down to it, like, this world is just really having some major heart issues. And Mm. I think that at the root of it, like take away the politics, take away the sides, take away all of it. What we have here is just a lot of sin and a lot of evil and a lot of heart issues. And the only way, in my opinion, like you said, to reconcile that is to be in community with each other and to love each other and to have those conversations and to go back to the word. And, you know, for me, someone who didn't have an understanding of what white privilege looked like, not because I didn't know the definition of the word, but because I never had to analyze my own life Mm -hmm. and analyze my family's life and come to an understanding like, oh, wait, I guess I would kind of fall into this category, but then you know, like you said, use that to then lift your brothers and your sisters up. And so I really, Mm -hmm. really loved how you just brought that into perspective. And I think it's really important for everyone to kind of, you know, take a grasp of. That was all so good. Well, thank you so much for spending time with us today. And thank you for being a voice and for being a friend who is open and wanting to talk about it. You know, today's topic aside, you as a person have carried so much weight and influence in my life, and I'm just so happy that I've gotten to share you with the podcast today. Yes. So thank you so much, Vincent, for taking the time yeah, thank you. and being here. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for joining us on today's episode of the Heart Candy Podcast. I love how this conversation challenged us to step outside ourselves for a moment. It gave us an opportunity to listen, to understand, and challenge us to do better, to rise up and not miss this moment to hold the hands of those who are in our Black community, however that may look like for you. Thank you so much, Benson, for sharing your story, for sharing your heart, and having grace on those who want to understand. Don't forget to find us on social media and give the Heart Candy Podcast a follow. You can find us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, so if you enjoy what you're listening to and want to support the Heart Candy, please follow us there as well. Do you know someone making a difference in your community? Email us at theheartcandypodcast at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. Until next time, bye! Thank you.